Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto but can be streamed from anywhere, and it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzili November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and we are very excited to present our first ever mailbag episode. Yay! Um, over the past few weeks, you all have been sending in your suggestions for discussion topics, just like dance world ideas and issues you'd like us to get into. And we've pulled three of those from our digital grab bag to get into today. So the winners are incorporating mental health into teacher training, which is a big, important topic, negotiating contract and pay issues in the freelance dance world, another huge one, which Amy has a lot to say about. And then we're going to do our first ever dance book review, talking about Gavin Larson's memoir, Being a Ballerina, which, spoiler, we think it's fantastic, but more to come on that. Um, If your topic didn't make it into this episode, don't worry, we'll definitely be doing more mailbag rounds in the not-so-distant future, so please keep the ideas coming. Speaking of which, we always love hearing from you all, whatever you want to talk about, and the easiest way to share your thoughts with us, thoughts about the podcast, thoughts about some piece of dance news we've missed, thoughts about any and all things dance, the easiest way to do that is on social media. So make sure you're following the dance edit at the.dance.edit on Instagram and at dance underscore edit on Twitter, and then you know, leave us a comment or slide on into our DMs. All right, no headline rundown this episode because we're actually coming to you from the past. We're recording this a couple of weeks before you're hearing it and our news will be old news by the time this drops. So we're going to get right into our first discussion segment, which is ways to incorporate mental health in teacher training. And so many of you wrote in asking to hear more about dance and mental health Generally speaking, this is clearly weighing on everyone's mind right now, which is not a surprise given the year and a half we've all had. Um, And creating a solid foundation for young students, making sure that we are addressing their mental health needs as well as their technical needs. That's such an important part of the equation here. So how can we make sure that teachers have the tools they need to develop dancers that are as healthy mentally as they are physically? I have two initial thoughts here, which I think speaks to like why this is such an important topic. I think the first one is that oftentimes as students and as young adults, but also just as human beings, I think oftentimes when you are dealing with an issue of mental health, actually reaching out to another person to talk about it can feel actually impossible no matter how much maybe you want to or are aware that you need to like sometimes like it is just like it simply seems insurmountable and so having someone for example a dance teacher who is maybe seeing you more than your own parents are seeing you at this point uh, having someone just take the time to stop and say something or anything or make an observation about it and do it in a caring way, that can genuinely make such a huge difference because it can open a door and form a bridge. And if it's done delicately and with care and respect, 
that can make all the difference in anyone's mental health, but especially students, especially in this industry and this training environment that can create or exacerbate so many issues. And the second point is that if you are coming at this as a teacher, it can sound like such a big insurmountable thing of, I have to figure out how to care for this as well on top of everything else that we are trying to impart in the studio. But I think a key point is, it's not on you to be 100% there for all of your students' mental health needs because you are not a mental health professional, but there are mental health professionals. And so acting as that bridge and acting as a point of contact, again, can make such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, as, as you know, as a teacher, you have so much responsibility in this regard. I mean, it can kind of be overwhelming. Not only do you have to think about how your own actions affect your students, basically the, the way you deliver feedback um, but also just being on the lookout for these things where, you know, understanding how to manage a situation where, for instance, a young dancer seems to be developing an eating disorder, is showing signs, um, or seems withdrawn. To recognize that and, and to understand how to handle that appropriately, I think that for, for teachers, it would be wonderful as someone who's taught myself and as someone who... I know I've made mistakes that I regret, you know, teaching someone in the way I delivered something or my expectations of a student where I realized that I actually affected them negatively. You know, I think as teachers, it would be wonderful to have those kind of resources to, you know, somewhere where they can go, Mm -hmm. whether it be an organization, a seminar, something to understand how they can help their dancers when they notice that something might be wrong. Yeah. Because you never know what's happening with them at home. You know, there, there are lots of reasons why dancers develop eating disorders beyond just, I want to be thin for dance. You know, a lot of times it, it it's other things that can contribute to that. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that while eating disorders, that is something that tends to get a lot of attention in the dance world. And we've gotten, I think, much better about talking about it in the dance world. It is something that really dovetails into concerns about physical health, right? And so it, in a weird way, is like almost the easier mental health issue that to talk about because it's like, oh, well, this directly impacts your physicality. Mm-hmm. It's like the gateway mental health issue. Yeah. Yes. But there's also a lot of other things like depression, perfectionism. There's all these other things that can also dovetail with eating disorders, but might have nothing to do with eating disorders. That is equally as important for creating resilient artists and also just resilient humans. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think the way you react to some something, you, you might think it's helpful, but it's not. You know, mm-hmm. for instance, the first half of my career, I really did struggle with anxiety and self-confidence. It was terrible. And I often would get sort of lectured on my low self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And that just sort of didn't really help because that was one more thing that was wrong with me that I had to work Mm on. You know, it was very hard to figure out how to work through that and develop more confidence with just changing my way of thinking, etc. But often it was just like, you have such low self-confidence and that's what's holding you back. And that's That's the end of story. Fix that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's so complicated because the vast majority of teachers, first of all, aren't even coming from a place where they have any kind of pedagogical training like happening. And, and even if they do, most pedagogy programs, if child psychology or psychology period is included, it's like a blip on the curriculum, even though it ends up being such a huge part of the day-to-day work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. 
Dance Magazine did a great story about this partnership that Point Park University is developing with Minding the Gap, the the advocacy group that's working to support dancers' mental health. And obviously not all dance teachers are working inside big institutions with lots of resources like Point Park, but the story did point out that they're trying to develop a curriculum that could be shared with other dance programs in schools. And I think that kind of resource is really what's what's needed so desperately here because yeah, most teachers don't have the resources to like retrain themselves or to invest in that kind of training. But right. is a targeted curriculum like that that could be shared widely oh, would be so helpful. Because teachers often get blamed for bad experiences and etc. But I think the vast majority of teachers really do want the best for their students and want to understand how to navigate these situations to create resilient artists, you know, and to have high standards for their dancers, but also just understand how, how the teenage brain especially is wired. Mm-hmm. I remember overhearing a, t- a teenage student, I said something to her, and I overheard her telling her other students something I had told her. And I was like, that is not what I meant at all, like <laughs> at all. And feeling so um, bad that it had been received this way. It was definitely like a red flag for myself. Like I have to be conscious about how I talk to young people. Yeah. How can we support teachers' fundamentally good intentions with, like, science and scientific knowledge? How do we back that up? By the way, we do want to make sure that you all check out the Minding the Gap website because it has some really great resources for people on sort of all sides of this equation, students, teachers, everybody. Um, That's at wearemindingthegap.org. Please do go visit that. Okay. So next up, we have a super thorny topic, which is negotiating pay and contract issues in the dance world, especially the freelance dance world. Um, This was submitted by Joe Lott on Instagram. And thank you, Joe, because there is a ton to unpack here. I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how dancers are often taught to focus on the work and not think about the money, you know, like being a starving artist is seen as a badge of honor. That attitude at least is slowly starting to change, but you can still find plenty of unpaid opportunities, quote unquote, out there. So how can you advocate for yourself in those kinds of scenarios, first of all? And then what needs to change structurally so that fair pay and reasonable contracts become, like, if not an industry standard, at least less rare? Like, let's talk about it. Well, I'll say that I freelanced for 10 years in New York City. And when I first started out, I was really surprised at how often, I mean, I would say most of the time, when someone reached out to me with a employment opportunity, or I should say a dance opportunity, the initial conversation was, hey, you know, I would love to hire you for this project. Are you available for these dates? Let me know. No mention of money. No mention of money. And, you know, in my naivete for the first year, you know, or so, because I was trying to build up networks and things like that, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm available, you know, and project sounds exciting. And then I like sort of expect the pay to be mentioned in the like response, and then it wouldn't be. And then I would have to like, kind of have this awkward exchange about pay. And then you would find out that, you know, some don't pay until the project is done, you get a performance fee, but all that rehearsal time, you don't get paid for. Or 
you know, you get paid in three installments or you get paid hourly or whatnot. But like that information is actually really important to know Mm -hmm. because there were some things I signed up for that I was like, I can't afford to do this. And I've already said yes. Mm -hmm. But yet I'm so desperate to build my resume that I'll just do it anyway. So it took me a while to finally, you know, as soon as that email came with the schedule and are you available? My response was, without even acknowledging the schedule, what are you offering as far as compensation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, it put the onus on me, which I didn't appreciate and I didn't feel was professional. Well, and I think there's this idea, right, around the mythos of like the starving artist that you, if you love what you do, it doesn't matter what you're being paid. I think there's this mythos that comes with that, which is, okay, if I start asking about compensation from the get-go, if I start negotiating for what my time is worth, I'm saying I don't actually care about the work that much, which Mm -hmm. is completely, like, completely untrue and doesn't make sense and is not true in, like, virtually any other industry in the United States. Like, could you imagine Mm -hmm. a doctor asking about compensation and then being told, oh, well, you don't care about your patients? Like, that, that makes no sense. Right. So this is something that has been very particular to the artist experience where we've sort of been conditioned to just be grateful to have work without ever being taught to advocate for ourselves and for what our time and effort and like it is actual physical labor. Dance is physical Mm -hmm. labor. And it takes so much. We all know how much it takes. Like you're listening to this podcast. You're involved in the dance world. You know. So we shouldn't devalue that work. It takes so much to be a dancer. And so saying like, hey, my time and physical labor is valuable does not inherently mean that you don't care. It means that you actually value yourself as an artist and as a worker. Yeah, I think there are actually some overlaps between this discussion and the discussion we were just having about teacher training, because there, mm-hmm. in both, there's this idea that the training you've received in the classroom will prepare you for the jobs you are about to take. And that's not true. There are just so many no. aspects of these workplaces that you're not trained to navigate, and you have to kind of figure it out on your own. And then, yeah, as we've been saying, there are all of these implicit biases involved that make it even harder to do that. And, you know, when you are freelancing, you do have expenses. You have to pay for your own class and training. You have to pay for your, you, you know, you're responsible for making sure you've got enough point shoes ordered in advance if you have special orders like I did. And that all has to be, I learned, factored in to what this gig will be worth as far as, you know, are you paying to dance for this gig or are you being compensated to cover these expenses that you are taking on? And uh, I'll also say... I worked with some quite young emerging choreographers. They were starting out. They didn't have anything. They were they they didn't have money to give, you know. And I, I just have to say, I worked with one. Um, she was in her twenties. I was in my twenties, and she paid me an hourly rate. I think out of her own pocket. Honestly, it was very small. But just to know that she valued each hour I was working for her, like felt great, you know, and it made up for the fact that she didn't have huge backers and patrons and things like that. And the work we did together was wonderful. And I really enjoyed that time. And it was worth it to me. Well, and I think also as a freelancer, right, there's a lot of factors that come into it. Because yeah, sometimes it's going to be like a friend of yours whose work you believe in, who you know, can't actually afford to pay you what you're worth. 
And I know when I've been in those situations, that's been a very frank conversation at the outset. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, is it artistically feeding you? Might this lead to something more eventually? But also, like, what are alternative ways of showing value for your dancers? Um, Something Mm -hmm. that I think like should be acknowledged and is kind of wonderful when it does happen is, okay, if you're a freelance dancer, if you want to take technique class, you are having to pay to go take technique class, right? So I think like something that can be done is, okay, if you're a young up-and-coming choreographer, you can't really afford to pay your dancers, make offering a warm-up or like a mini class part of your rehearsal process, part of the time that they are putting in so that they're not having to go Mm -hmm. and pay to take a class and then show up to your rehearsal that they're not going to get paid for. Things like that. Different exchanges that you can do because also all dancers these days are crazy multi-hyphenates who have so many skill sets at their disposal. So figure out what you can trade. If your friend's really good at website design, maybe you can trade off for that. If your friend's really good at constructing resumes, you can trade off for that. There's a lot of different ways to approach this. I do think there is a conversation to be had that I think is an ongoing one of, okay, if you accept work for free, are you then devaluing dancers pay overall for the field because part of the way that dancers and freelancers are going to be able to collectively negotiate for actually getting paid what they deserve is if it is a collective thing where Mm -hmm. there is a level of solidarity in place but it's a negotiation it has to be happening and i think it all comes down to what amy was talking about at the very beginning which is clear communication from the get-go. The onus shouldn't be placed on the dancers, but when it is, dancers need to be equipped to be able to have those conversations. And speaking of collective negotiation, I mean, clearly the the union discussion comes into play here. I know there Mm -hmm. are conversations happening, and especially in like New York and Chicago, I think thinking dancers thinking about what would a freelance dancer union look like? Would it follow like the Writers Guild of America model? Would it end up under AGMA? Like, how would that work? And, um, I mean, I don't think I need to explain the benefits of unionization to this crowd. But but yeah, that can also be a long, complicated process. So I mean, clearly, we're not going to solve this issue on this podcast today. But the larger point is, yes, figuring out ways to acknowledge dancers' value, whether that's financially or in other ways, but acknowledging the value of the time and the work that dancers are putting in. Okay, so... Last up today, we're going to do our first ever book review. And this was an idea suggested by Kirouette on Instagram, otherwise known as Kira Laubacher. And we're we're kind of cheating here because Kira is a former point intern and one of our frequent freelancers. So hi, Kira. Thank you. Um, but it is a great season for dense book reviews because there are so many awesome new books out. I mean, this could potentially become a series. So the book that we want to discuss today is Gavin Larson's Being a Ballerina, The Power and Perfection of a Dancing Life, which is a beautiful memoir about Larson's experiences as a student and a professional dancer. Oh, you guys, I love this book. So I tend to be a little bit leery of dancer memoirs. Uh, I love them, but they tend to be a very specific category of book, I think, where there tends to be Mm -hmm. a lot of like name dropping and then I did this role and then I did this role and they kind of tend to fall into this very predictable formula. And this is maybe one of the first dancer memoirs in a while that I just love as a piece of writing. It is Mm -hmm. so beautifully written and also so cleverly written because what Gavin does, at least in the beginning, is she says in the preface that, you know, sometimes my dancer self feels like a completely different person than who I am today. 
And so the chapters that have to do with her training and like her early career are actually written in the third person, mm-hmm. uh, which is a f- just brilliant writing device um, in that mm-hmm. it kind of, in a way, turns this kid finding her way in the ballet world into a character in a novel. Every kid. Into every, every kid. kid. And it makes it yeah. easier for like you, the reader, to go into her shoes because all of a sudden it feels like you're reading a novel. So, of course, you can picture mm-hmm. yourself in that. And then there's also like interstitial chapters that are like taking you through what a day as a professional dancer is actually like. And those are written in the second person. So it is emphatically placing you the reader in her shoes and it is Mm -hmm. so beautifully written like i can't remember the last time i read something and was like i want to go take class right now (laughs) (laughs) i want to go take can i do plies i'm gonna go do plies okay (laughs) i miss blisters i know isn't that strange (laughs) it's a weird feeling I mean, I I also enjoyed the overall like show don't tellness of this book, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to the the less positive aspects of ballet. Because Galen is really self aware; she's very clear eyed about like troublesome situations that she experienced and like harmful thought patterns that ballet cultivated in her. But as a reader, you find those upsetting not because she's telling you this is really upsetting. They're upsetting because they're so sensitively drawn in a way that reveals all of their complexities. Like the scene where she has crazy vertigo, she can't stand up straight, mm-hmm. and she's supposed to perform Allegro Briant, which like, if there were ever a nightmare ballet to perform when you have vertigo, that's right. it. And her director's sort of like shrugging response to that, which was basically like, don't upset this casting house of cards that I built. Please just go on. <laughs> like, I think you told her to take some deep breaths. <laughs> Gavin doesn't cast any definitive judgments in her description of that scene, but the fullness of the description of it makes it an absolute gut punch to you as the reader. Like, oh my gosh, that really happened to her. This is real life in ballet. Mm -hmm. And the same, just the way she writes about performing and and the the joy, Mm -hmm. the absolute thrill and joy of performing on stage and when it goes right, just like I think she totally. captured that perfectly. I think I marked this line that was just so beautiful. Let me see if I can find it. Is it the one about the sugar plum potada? Suddenly at the height yes. of the lift. Yeah, I'll read it to you, <laughs> pod listeners. But suddenly at the height of the lift and on that one magnificent note, everything was crystal clear. This is the apex of life. This is the happiest a person on earth can be. This is perfection. And I like so identified with mm-hmm. that feeling of just having a performance where you're you're just completely lost in it and everything goes just perfectly and it's the most amazing feeling. You know what's crazy? I've never danced that padada, but I have experienced that feeling at that exact moment as a viewer mm-hmm. watching that mm-hmm. ballet. Like, that is it. This is the reason mm-hmm. we're here and doing this craziness. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also find there's something very visceral about the way she describes her experiences. Like, there's that chapter where she describes, like, her first week as an apprentice oh and having to spend the entire day in point shoes and how it was like what <laughs> like the torture and the pain and just like trying to get through and you know her throbbing feet and all of that um it was just so spot on to me yeah, yeah. i think it's if i had to use two words it's visceral and it's novelistic and i think mm-hmm. those two things together i mean one it just speaks to again extraordinary writing just Mm -hmm. wildly impressive writing 
Um, but I think it speaks to the way that she's managed in this memoir to both not at all gloss over the difficult, problematic, sometimes really awful parts of her career and a career in dance, but at the same time without ever once losing sight of this is magical and this is why we do this. Mm-hmm. And managing yeah, to do totally. those two things simultaneously in this like beautifully honest way and this beautifully transportive way is... It's one hell of a hat trick. <laughs> yeah. The sublime and the problematic and just the quotidian, the everyday stuff. It's all it's all in there. So of course, we are encouraging you to go read Being a Ballerina. That's our that's our end verdict here. <laughs> um we will include a link to the University Press of Florida's page for the book in the show notes. And Gavin is also, well, just a friend, but also a friend of the pod. And she did this like lovely, thoughtful interview with us about the book, about her decision to use the third person, the, the whole writing process, which is interesting. And also about just more generally speaking, some ways that we can make dance environments more compassionate and empathetic. So please do go listen to that too. That was back in episode 60. All right, that concludes our first ever mailbag episode. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for a regular episode with more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.